Let's pray again together. Angela will lead us and we'll join for the part in bold. From the darkness of the grave, blood poured out, a crown of thorns. Christ the Lord is risen today. He is risen indeed. From the triumph that is won over the power and fear of death, Christ the Lord is risen today. He is risen indeed. Walking from the empty tomb, opening wide the gates of life, Christ the Lord is risen today. He is risen indeed. Author of life, you defeated death to demonstrate a love that is beyond our understanding. Christ Jesus, help us bring your word of life as a light to those in darkness, to bring your word of peace to those enslaved by fear, to bring your word of love to those in need of comfort. Lord of resurrection life, be known through our lives. Christ the Lord is risen today. He is risen indeed. Sing with us in desperate places. Sunday 
and together we say, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Welcome to South Bend City. I'm Jason. And today is the day, like today, today is the day when chocolate versions of an animal, which until 1912 was classified as a rodent, <laughs> true story, when chocolate versions of an animal, which until 1912 was classified as a rodent, which in the history of biology has never been known to lay eggs, <laughs> somehow paired with eggs, plastic versions of which are strewn about fields, so that cute little children in their Sunday best dresses and suits can run around in the dirt and pick up plastic versions of eggs with toys and candy and money inside, because somehow that's how we celebrate the revolution that was started 2,000 years ago by a Jewish rabbi who everybody thought was down for the count until they found out that he wasn't. And the way we found out that he wasn't was that the women kept paying attention when the men gave up. <laughs> and that wouldn't be the first time that happened. And so for 2,000 years, the church has been celebrating Sundays and especially Easter Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the reason we say Jesus is Lord. It's, it's the reason this movement didn't die 2,000 years ago. It's the reason that Palm Sunday isn't just a sad little historical memorial of a failed political movement, right? This is Easter Sunday. And by the way, since I mentioned Palm Sunday, I need one second of pastoral privilege to talk to my church. Uh, last week, we had a peculiar Palm Sunday. You weren't around for it, you may not know, but Mayor Pete's presidential campaign announcement happened next door, which means we lost all of our parking and had a number of inconveniences that day. And I just want to say whether your politics lean left or right, or you feel like you have none at all, whether you were excited about that or frustrated with it, I just want to say I was so proud of this church because you guys just showed up and like around the corner and through the woods and under the bridge. <laughs> and we were here and we were a church and it was a really beautiful day and I'm really proud of the, the character and the spirit of this community. Uh, in light of an unexpected disruption. So anyway, thank you for being uh, amazing. Uh, pastoral prerogative over. Let's get back uh, to talking about resurrection. Um, when I talk about resurrection and it's Easter Sunday and you're here in church, I realize there's probably a lot of feelings in the room, right? A lot of different experiences. Some of you are here because mom or dad dragged you and they promised you brunch afterwards. Fair play, fair play. Um, maybe, frankly, this is the part where you're like, man, the music was lit, but now the preacher's up there. And this is usually the moment when I start to feel like crap. Because for some reason the guy up there thinks it's his job to make me feel like crap. Um, or maybe you have some, um, some doubts about the resurrection thing. You feel like this is the moment when you're asked to believe something uh, fundamentally irrational or unbelievable. I, I don't know how you're feeling right now. But I want to talk especially about that wrestling with resurrection that I think a lot of thoughtful people experience if they think about faith or, or Christianity. So I'm a person who's like uh, my whole life been raised in church and taught to believe and I've been a pastor for my entire adult life. And I gotta be honest with you, um, I actually feel a great common ground with people who feel some distance from the center of this. Like when we say like the resurrection of Jesus is at the center of this, I, I relate to you if you feel some distance from that. Uh, in my life as a, a person of faith and then as a pastor, I've actually felt that the closer we get to the center, like the closer we get to the, the thing at the middle of all of it, that's actually the, the place where I, I feel something other than certainty. I feel something more like proximity to a mystery. And that's been really hard for me because I've seen other people in a job like mine on a stage like this, and it seems that the closer you get to the center, the more certain you're supposed to be. And your job is to stand up here and hammer the table and just have the whole thing nailed down. But that's actually never been my experience because the closer I get to the center, the less certain I have felt, the more I feel proximate to a mystery there. 
that I'm on the edge of. And maybe you've felt that way too. Now, um, when Easter's on the calendar and it's coming up like it tends to do every year, uh, I always feel those feelings uh, stirring back up inside and some wrestling going on actually about what it means to be a community to give like a faithful witness to what is at the center of Christian faith. When I myself find myself on the edge of a mystery that I've had a hard time nailing down sometimes. I was getting ready for this Easter and wrestling with that all over again and then I was looking at the gospel texts that tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I actually noticed something I've never noticed before that helped me uh, find my place in this story in a way that like, really moved me this year. And what I noticed is that something's missing from all the, all the resurrection accounts. Something's missing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. I'm going to take you through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, but something's missing from all of them. Let me just see if you can notice it. Let's start here in Mark. So Joseph bought some linen and took down the body of Jesus. This is when they take him off the cross, and he wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. And he said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. All right, that's Mark's telling. Let's go on. This is Luke's telling. Joseph took Jesus' body down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. That's Luke's telling. Everybody hanging with me so far? Let's go to John. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. And let's go on to Matthew. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock, and he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, and there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it, which is a baller move if you ask me. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Did anybody notice what's missing? Okay, Jesus, yeah, let's keep keep going. Wait, wait. You know what's missing from the resurrection accounts? The resurrection Hang with me for a moment, okay? This is Jesus' biggest moment, right? Like, if I'm Jesus, I want the Dolby surround sound up, right? Like, I want a crowd there. And the moment when my dead body gets raised to new life by the Father, I want an audience. 
I want like real-time footage, right? Like I want that like blinding light to hit you in the eyes as the body comes up off the stone so I can stand in front of you and drop a mic, <laughs> right? The, the actual moment of the resurrection is missing from all of these stories. Hang with me on this. We're gonna work this out for a moment, okay? I promise I'm going somewhere. The resurrection is missing from the resurrection stories. The actual moment of glory, the moment when the, the, the thing happened, and that's, that's striking to me. Now, maybe you think to yourself, well, if that moment happened without witnesses, then we wouldn't have a way to tell that part of the story. But the gospel writers have no problem telling parts of the story where there were no witnesses. There's another part of Jesus' life when he's alone in the wilderness being tempted. How do we know? They wrote about it in the gospels, right? The gospel writers don't have a problem writing about something that didn't have eyewitnesses. They don't have a problem writing about moments which Jesus himself only experienced in solitude, but they don't actually tell you the moment of the resurrection. I think something is going on here. This rings a bell. This has a faint echo of another moment in the scriptures. Let me go back to Exodus chapter 33. So we're going way, way back in the story to the story of the Israelites. And this is the moment when Moses and God have led the Israelites out of their slavery. He's calling them to be a certain kind of people together. He's calling them to, to manifest a certain vision of humanity in the world. He's calling them to be a blessing for everyone in the world. And Moses is on the mountain having a conversation with God, basically saying, you're asking me to stick my neck out. You're asking me to lead this people into an unknown future. You're asking us to be vulnerable in the wilderness, and I need to be certain who it is that's backing this, this enterprise. I want to see your glory, God. I want to see your glory. I want to get my hands on the center of the center of the center of God's presence in the world. I want to see your glory. And then this happens. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. One uh, Jewish reading of this text says that God said, you will see the place where I just was. You will see the place where I just was. Moses says, God, I want to get my hands in the center of the action. I want to like, see you in your moment of power so I can be certain about what it is that you're calling me to do, and I'll know that I'm okay. And God refuses to give him that. And Jesus, in his moment of victory, the, the moment of vindication, you might think that people would be able to be there to see it, that he would want an audience for that, and yet it actually happens in darkness in a hidden moment that we have no account of in the resurrection. Now, hear me out. I believe in the resurrection through and through. I think it, it's the most rational interpretation of history. I actually do. I think uh, in simple cause and effect logic, the greater the effect, the greater re the required cause, right? If you're gonna move a pebble, you need a pinky, right? If you're gonna a, move a boulder, you need a bulldozer. And if you're gonna move an entire movement of people to change the world, you need something to ignite that. And I think resurrection is the most logical interpretation of the history that we have. I believe in it through and through, but it's interesting to me that God doesn't seem concerned about taking us into the center of that moment. It's rather like he keeps us on the edges of a mystery, and that's really striking to me. Now, there's another thing in common between Exodus chapter 33 and the moments of resurrection where Jesus' uh, followers, the women and the men who discover this, 
um, are encountering it for the first. There's a moment in common with both of these. It's not just that they don't get to like nail down the center. It's also that these are both commissioning moments. These are both moments when these people are being sent out to do something in the world, to, to invest themselves in a certain kind of project. So Moses is being called to lead the people of God into an unknown future in the wilderness, to become, to become a very different kind of people in the world. And the apostles are going to spend the rest of their life proclaiming the reality of God's kingdom and the resurrection of Jesus, right? So these are commissioning moments. And it strikes me that what you need for a proper commissioning isn't actually certainty. What you need for a proper commissioning is openness to a mystery that you will surrender to and live your life dancing with. And as I was getting ready for Easter again this year and wrestling with some of those feelings that I have as we get closer to the center of the center of the center, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, I've been thinking about the possibility that openness to a mystery might be better preparation than certainty that you can nail down, that you can lock down, that you can just have it fixed. I wonder if God knows that if Moses is on the mountain and he sees the glory of God, maybe God knows Moses ain't coming down. Why would you leave? Why would you leave the mountaintop and go back to the gritty, like, ground-level reality of the people that you were leading if the glory of God is up there? So maybe God knows, like, if I show you that, it, it might actually take you out of the world that I'm calling you to be a part of, right? If you're the disciples, the apostles, the women and the men who discover the resurrected Christ, and if you're there for the moment, it's possible you just like set up camp there. By the way, there's a moment a little earlier in the story where the disciples actually try to set up camp at a moment of Jesus' glorification in front of them, this transformation moment. And he says, no, you're, gonna, you're missing the point. And I actually think it's possible that the point of the resurrection of Jesus isn't just what it says about Jesus. I think the point of the resurrection of Jesus is what it says about everything, what it says about reality, and how it's calling us to live in harmony with the reality that is so often um, obscured by evil and brokenness that claims to be the final word on reality when it isn't. I think the point of the resurrection of Jesus is not just what it says about Jesus, but what it says about everything. Uh, It's interesting, Jesus is resurrected in a garden. So for anybody with a Jewish imagination that's been formed by the narrative of scripture, when you hear about a garden, you are hearing about the creation of all things because the original creation story happens in a garden. One of, the, one of the text says that this happens on the eighth day. Well, there is no eighth day. It's only seven days, right? Unless a whole new reality is breaking in, right? Matthew's gospel says that along this moment when Jesus is resurrected, that also many crawl out of tombs, which doesn't sound super inspiring to me, frankly. It's a little creepier than anything else, right? But this suggests that the resurrection of Jesus is important not just for what it says about Jesus, but that it is opening up something bigger than one man who walked around, but it's a kingdom that expands beyond that, and you're being invited to be a part of it, to work with it, to dance with it, to play along with it. Now, like, again, I think if, if, if we get to be there at the center of the center of the center and lock everything down with certainty, it's possible that we miss the bigger story that's being told. It's possible we miss the calling that it has on us when it says, hey, I'm actually telling you something about reality and I want you to go out there and live into it, to press into it, to play along with it, right? So what does the resurrection of Jesus say about everything? Well, uh, how how much time do you have? Uh, I just want to pull out one thread that I think is undeniable when you contemplate the resurrection of Jesus, one thread, and it's simply this. 
Evil is a limited resource. I actually think one of the things that the resurrection of Jesus says about reality is that evil is a limited resource. Work with me on this for a bit. From the beginning of Jesus' life, we discover this growing confrontation between him and the life of God in him and the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming and evil. Everything opposed to that goodness, that truth, that beauty, that life of God that is breaking into the world. From the very beginning, in the birth narratives, we see an evil king who decides to massacre the children of his kingdom because he hears that this baby might be a threat to his power, right? Early foreshadowing, and then when Jesus lives out his ministry, we see all these growing confrontations between the goodness of his life and kingdom and the evil that's around him, and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter until evil decides it will bring everything it's got. Evil decides it will unload its entire arsenal against Jesus. It will bring everything it has to defeat Jesus because what can evil do besides kill you, right? So evil brings everything it has. It unloads its entire arsenal, everything it's got they bring against Jesus. And when that arsenal is exhausted, depleted, emptied out, what happens? Jesus is still there. Life goes on. Resurrection says that evil is actually a limited resource. And I think this is an important word for the year 2019 because I don't know about you, but to me, sometimes it feels like evil actually has the last word. Like, like it feels like every little hopeful story of some, some growing good is going to be defeated at some point. Every little dream inside you that we could defeat the things that are broken in the world and put things back together, it feels like that's naive, right? You ever been there? Has your Twitter feed convinced you of that? Has cable news convinced you of that? Has the rut that your life or your family or your relationships or your addiction is in, has that convinced you that the things that break the world are ultimately more powerful than the things that will put it back together? Well, maybe you need to know that evil brought everything it had. Everything it had, it emptied out its arsenal. It brought everything it had. And after it unloaded everything it had, Jesus is standing there a couple days later on the outside of the tomb, glorified in a resurrection body because evil is actually a limited resource. Uh, I think this is an important word um, for the text that I got this morning. I woke up early and turned on my phone, and the first messages I saw were from friends in Sri Lanka. I don't know if you had a chance to check the news this morning, but after maybe a decade or so of a very fragile peace, after a bloody, violent, genocidal kind of uh, civil war in Sri Lanka, after a little period of a fragile peace, Today, suicide bombers struck churches all over Sri Lanka. And there are people there in that country who are shaking with the fear of a conflict that might bubble back up. And so they reached out and asked if we'd pray for them. And I remember reading these texts from friends, thinking to myself, these are the moments when we have to ask ourselves, what is the greater reality? When, when violence seems to be the way things go, we'll be tempted to invest ourselves in violence. When power over people seems to be the way things go, we'll be tempted to invest ourselves in that kind of power. When deception or corruption or greed seem to be the, the more enduring realities of the world, we will be tempted to invest ourselves in those things. But my friends in Sri Lanka, the reason I first found them and became friends with them is because they are people who are heroically invested in another story. And they believe with their bones that evil is a limited resource and that peace is actually a better investment. I thought about um, 
the feelings that I had when I watched Notre Dame Cathedral burn, and I actually got pretty emotional about that. I've had a couple of my most meaningful encounters with God sitting in the pews of that cathedral in Paris, and I got really stirred up about that for a bit, and then I realized um, can, with, a, with a feeling of conviction, as I was like on the verge of tears for Notre Dame, that black churches in America are burning today, and I've never shed a tear for them. Never been so moved by that reality. And these are the moments that ask us, they interrogate us, they say, do, do you believe that evil is actually more powerful, that violence is the way things go, that power over one another is, is just the way the world works? Or do you believe that another reality is breaking in and it is more enduring and reliable? It's the kingdom of God and it was vindicated when the king was resurrected because evil brought everything it had. And when its arsenal was emptied out, it looked up and saw Jesus standing there a couple days later. It's evil is a limited resource. Makes you think, doesn't it? Maybe about the ways that we become invested in evil. Now, I know most of us are probably not arms traders. <laughs> most of us probably don't bankroll dictators or you know, run torture shops in our basements. But aren't there these little compromises, these little agreements that we make? We say, well, that's the way things are. And so you're better if you're a little bit greedy because you're going to get some for yourself. You're better if you use a little bit of power over the other people because you're going to get some for yourself. Maybe even you're better with a little bit of violence in your life, the ability to affect other people, to force other people, to hurt other people. You're just a little better there because that's the way things go. But if you believe that evil is the thing that will run out, you might wake up and say, those are bad investments. And if you believe that God's kingdom actually endures after evil has unloaded its arsenal, you might decide to take some risks. You might decide to open yourself up a little bit. Now, I know you may not have the certainty nailed down. You may not have everything figured out, but you will discover that your heart is on the edge of a mystery, which is the life of God's kingdom that somehow keeps coming, keeps breaking in, in a world that's longing for it. And you may not be certain, but your heart will be open, and you might discover that you are being called to do something in the world that we have right now. I was thinking about my friends in Sri Lanka, and I was thinking about the, the risks that people take and the temptations to keep things secure and locked down. And I was thinking about a fork in the road in my life just a few years ago where uh, I had a really good job. <laughs> and it was a lot easier than this one. Um, <laughs> and it was like more secure. And I felt something like a commissioning. I did not have everything nailed down. Something like a calling, which was, hey, be a part of a new church in South Bend. And I remember thinking, like, South Bend? I, mean, I love my city. I've lived in the city for a long time. But South Bend? This is before the Pete President thing happened, right? So, like, let's remember, okay, <laughs> just a couple of years ago what that felt like, you know? South Bend? I've got a good job. And frankly, when I get to the edge of the mystery, I don't have it all figured out, God, so how could I possibly stick my neck out and make myself vulnerable and do a thing like this? And I mean, there were so many moments, there were multiple moments when I almost backed down, where I thought, nah, I think I'll just keep things safe and tidy because that's the better way to live, that's the easier way to be, right? And it's like God is saying, yeah, you could have everything nailed down there, that's great, nice and tidy and certain, or you could open your heart to a mystery and you could dance with it a little bit. And you can see what it is that we want to create together. And that was a few years ago, and now we're sitting here in Studebaker, and I think to myself, thank God. 
Like, thank God I didn't um, waver too much on that. Like, this isn't about, like, a Southland City Church pitch either. It's just I keep finding out that the world is hungry for life and for hope. It's hungry for people who may not have the center nailed down, but who are open to the mystery and who are generous enough to share it with other people. And so we get to be a church with a train going by. <laughs> Don't they know it's Easter? Man. And we get to hear stories. Um, about once a week, I'll get a letter or a message from someone talking about the life that is growing in them. And they'll say that some part of that is because they get to be a part of this, this church community here. And um, when I read those messages, I just think, like, I'd give everything for that. And I would give everything for that. And uh, I'm not the bravest church planter. Um, certainly my friends in Sri Lanka have more at stake today. But I do believe that whenever we, we make a move to say evil is a limited resource, and so we will invest ourselves in the, the risky, vulnerable good. We may be the ones on the mountain saying, God, make it clear for me. Show me your glory. And he says, you're going to get to see where I just was, and that's all you're going to get. Now get it back out there. Get off the mountain. Do something, right? I suspect that's the calling of Easter on you and me today. Some of you right now are going to feel like really like this big sense of confidence. Yeah, Jesus is resurrected. God is good and the kingdom is coming. Others will feel like you're on the edge of a mystery that you haven't nailed down. And I would say either way, great. Now let's get out there and do something, right? Mary, when she sees Jesus, she has this response that I understand. Imagine you're Mary, right? Mary, Jesus is your friend, your teacher. He's healer. He is the one that stands up for justice. He's the one that is putting the world back together. For three years, you're with this little tribe of people that like lives their lives with him and you see all the good that is coming from him and then you see all of that good ended on the cross and you tell yourself the way we often tell ourselves, oh, that's the way these stories actually go, right? You get hopeful for a moment but then like Groundhog Day, we're back to the same ending, right? And every time we see a little bit of hope or a little bit of joy, then we see it nailed on a cross and so she has that same feeling of despair, I'm sure. But she goes to tend to his body and then discovers that the hope that she had felt wasn't naive and that the evil that she had seen actually ran out. So she sees Jesus, and like this makes sense to me, right? She clings to him. She, she embraces him. She grasps him, which seems like the right move, right? And then Jesus says this, do not hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. You're going to try to keep a white-knuckled grip on the way that you want things to be, but I'm actually trying to send you out, and you're going to be a little bit vulnerable out there. And you're going to have to be a little bit brave out there. But this, this isn't about camping out in the center of the center of the center. It's about living your life dancing on the edges of the mystery, which is God in Christ, who is calling you out there to do something. So I wonder today if we could put a couple of questions in front of our community here, just a couple of things to reflect on together. Uh, this is kind of common practice for our church, just to create a little bit of space, because I don't know about you, but I know for me, as soon as I walk out of here today, things are kind of crazy. So why don't we create a little bit of sacred space together before we go. I just want to put a couple of questions in front of us to see if they stir anything for you. For some, these might be a, a cue for prayer, a chance to ask God to, to lead your mind or your heart uh, wherever God wants to lead you in these questions. That's beautiful. I know for some, prayer is not a word that works for you right now. Or God may not be 
a word that points to anything that means anything to you right now. I propose maybe these are just at least a, a useful reflection, a meditation. But let's take a, a couple of moments and just let these questions sit with us on the screen before the band leads us further. What would you give up on or walk away from if you believed that evil is an investment that will come up short? Is there a little agreement that you've made, a little compromise that you made, some part of your life, your energies, your heart, your emotions that you have invested? And you may not call it evil, but it's something less than the good of God's kingdom. Would you walk away from it if you believed that it would come up short? And what would you give yourself to if you believed that even death can't threaten the life of God's kingdom? What would you give yourself to if you knew in your heart that evil is a limited resource? Would you be wrapping your arms around Jesus and he would say, don't cling to me, I want to get you out there, you've got work to do. Would you be up there on the mountain wanting to linger in the place of God's glory and he says, get down there to the ground floor, we've got work to do, we've got a world to make together. Let's sit with these questions for a moment before we sing.
close together by singing, we'll be free, we'll all be free. Said we'll be free, 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 we'll all be free. Said we'll be free, 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 we'll all be free. Who the sun sets free, free, is truly, truly, free, indeed. Said we'll be free. Before you go, first of all, I don't know if mom gave up on giving you Easter baskets like mine did me. Just kidding. But we got gifts, we got gifts for you. It's Easter. Uh, if you want, we've got, we got these nifty new mugs. A um, couple of things. There's our mantra cards are on the inside. If you're new here, there's a little explanation for what these are. But basically, these are four little portable prayers that have shaped our community from the beginning. And we like to take them with us into our everyday lives, and maybe they'll be a gift to you in the same way. Uh, the mug has uh, our logo on it, um, and there's actually a really important story behind this. There's some symbols there, and maybe you'd like to learn about them. Well, I'm not going to take any more time right now to do it, uh, but we have our intro to SBCC uh, class happening on Sunday, May 5th. It'll be after the 11.45 a.m. gathering. We would love to sort of take you behind the curtain, under the hood, uh, if you're curious about uh, what this church is all about. Uh, if you want to know about our leadership, uh, maybe you want to know about things like finances or how to get more involved, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that at Intro to SBCC after our gatherings on Sunday, May 5th. Uh, maybe you're not the type to want to sit around and just hear more words from the stage, but you'd like to find another way to get to know this community a little better. Great opportunity coming up. It's Belly Burst. It's during South Bend's best week ever, Saturday, June 8th. It's right here on the streets of the neighborhood. This is not one of those like marathon, half marathon, achievement fest kind of things. This is like a less than one mile jaunt through the streets with hammocks, couches, donuts, and pizza. Uh, but the larger point is to raise funds and awareness uh, for the cause of chronic homelessness in our city and to support our partners who work on that. So we would love to see you. Just go to bellyburstunrun.com and sign up. This Easter, may you know that Jesus is risen and that if he is risen, evil is a limited resource. And may you get out there and live the life that you are called to live, if that's true. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.